All right, well, we are in Revelation chapter 19, and Revelation 19 is one of those awesome, awesome chapters of the Bible. Um, The one thing that stands out to us most of the time in this chapter, for good reason, is that was Christ coming back to this earth, riding on a white horse, and the saints following him, and he defeats the Antichrist. And uh, we'll get that in the coming weeks. But tonight, I want to look at verses 1 through 10. And the title, again, is A a Party for the Ages. So coming out of chapter 18, um, we've seen the destruction of Babylon, that religious system that oppressed and killed uh, those followers, those believers uh, in Jesus Christ. And so it's been destroyed. As we move into chapter 19, um, there's a great rejoicing that takes place. But there are three main movements that we're going to see. We're going to see the, the announcement that the, the Lamb has been married. We're going to see the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. We're gonna, so that's kind of one event there. Uh, the second coming of Christ, and then Christ's destruction of the Antichrist. So tonight we'll just get that first portion, that first part. So let's begin reading. And we'll read down to verse uh, 10 of chapter 19. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, hallelujah, uh, our smoke, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. So actually, we'll stop right there. So verses one through four, it is talking to us about uh, the rejoicing that's going on at the destruction of Babylon. Now, I'm not going to take the time to rehearse what Babylon is. Take a look back on the website. You can go through the last two or three studies that we did on Babylon. But again, as I said in the introduction, it is a uh, religious, it's a city, a literal city that is having religious and commercial influence over the world. Um, and part of, the, of her worst deeds that are noted is that she has been killing the saints. And that even comes out again here. So there is great rejoicing. Heaven erupts with this rejoicing. Um, and as, as we read this, we see that um, the angels say that glory, honor, and power are the Lord's. Now that's, that's a, a phrase we've come across earlier. In Revelation chapter 4, in that uh, heavenly scene, the first heavenly scene we came across in verses 1 through 11, we find this same statement being made that uh, the 24 elders and the living creatures, that they are worshiping the Lord and they're saying glory and honor and power belong to the Lord. Now, this is a constant struggle we have with our flesh is to give glory and honor and power to the Lord. This is something that's always a battle. And of course, as we walk in the Spirit, we give glory, honor, and power to the Lord, but when we venture off and we go into our um, our own fleshly ways, when we give into the world, when we um, just get caught up in not even sinful things, just the things of this world, the cares of this earth, we lose focus. To give glory means to declare that God is awesome. To give honor means to show respect. To give power 
means to give him the rule or declare his right to rule and have uh, a say over our life. So the question for us is, is the Lord being glorified or praised? Is the Lord being glorified or praised in my life? Is the Lord being honored or respected and, and therefore submitted to? Are these things happening in my life? Is the Lord being given control over my life? Now, let me be clear. The Lord is omnipotent. He has all power. He can do whatever he wants. But what he wants is to work within the free will of man to see us give him proper place in our life. So he can just, he could program us. He could push a button and make us all like robots where we, we do all of this. But what he's calling for is as a matter of worship, as a matter of our free will, declaring our acknowledgement of his uh, greatness in our life and therefore our submission to him and saying, Lord, I want your power to, to rule over my life. I'm not looking for um, you know, my will to be asserted um, in this situation. I want your will. I want your power to be at work. And so as, as the scene opens there in heaven, in verse 1, we see this uh, statement. And it's, um, it's a, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So just get familiar with these words, right? Because you're going to repeat them many times in heaven. Um, to you be glory, to you be honor, to you be power. But we should be becoming, it's the point I'm making, we should be becoming familiar with that song. Not just the lyrics, but the, the intent of it. What is that declaration? Now in verses 2 and 4, um, we find this statement that the Lord's judgments are true and righteous. Again, something we've come across many times. I think the, the reason why this is repeated so many times in the book of Revelation is because God's judgment are front and center. Now, God is a, a God of um, grace and mercy, but we also know that he is a just judge and he will judge. Um, and really, we're living in this age of grace. Um, does the Lord still judge today? Do we see his fingerprint of judgments uh, in, in events of history? I guess we do. Um, God is sovereign. He can judge. I don't know which ones they are. I know a lot of people feel like this, you know, the COVID-19 or, um, you know, the Katrina or you pick your, you know, your catastrophe. Every time that happens, there are those that are quick to say, this is the judgment of God. 9-11. Okay, here's a problem I have with that. In 9-11, there were Christians that experienced the judgment of God. With COVID-19, there are Christians then, according to that logic, that are experiencing the judgment of God. When Katrina hit, there were Christians, there were churches that were destroyed, experienced the judgment of God. Does that sound right to you? That doesn't sound right to me. God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. So I think this is a I think we need to tread real lightly when we begin to say God is judging this and God is judging that in this current age. I'm not saying that he can't and that he won't, but just from where I sit, it's a pretty hard thing to figure out. He chastens whom he loves. Is he judging? Well, we know he will. And in the book of Revelation, there's all kinds of judgment that is taking place. And so we find these associated statements of the character and nature of God, that he's true and that he is righteous. You can't say that about the courts of this world. 
You can't say that of the rulers of this world. Even, you know, because you have those that can be bought off, right? So they'll give a judgment. They'll, they'll put their hand on the scales of justice. And um, because of this, un, uh, this wicked influence, they will change and alter um, a righteous outcome in the courtrooms. And this is something that probably has happened, uh, you know, down through the ages in every courtroom. Um, you, there's, it's not above that kind of influence. So we got to be careful. We want to have good men and women in that position. But even when you find those that are, are good and they will not be bought and they will not put their hands on the scales, are they always true? Now, this is not so much referring to um, their character as much as it is their ability to properly get truth. In the courtroom, people lie. People misrepresent things. Not all of the evidence is in. And so I am certain that good judges have seen outcomes as history has gone on that they're like, wow, that was the wrong thing. And because they're good men and women, they're, they're, you know, they, they have a, a moral fiber to them, they can acknowledge that. So you have this, you, you know, those that just are not righteous and those that are, that are, are are righteous, but they're not true. But the Lord is both of them. He's, nobody's going to tip the scales of God's justice, and he knows all things. So whatever he does, and whatever the Bible says he does, it is always this, true and righteous in all of his ways. And so this statement comes after a terrible um, outpouring of God's wrath. So the Lord is true and righteous. We move on into verses 5 through 8. And um, we'll read those together. And in this section of Scripture, we're hearing about um, heaven rejoicing at the marriage of the Lamb. So heaven was rejoicing at the destruction of Babylon. Now we see them uh, rejoicing at the marriage of the Lamb. Verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, and he describes this loud, this, this voice in three different ways. It was a voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters. So think of like waterfalls just thundering, and actually the sound of mighty thunderings. This is a loud singing. I mean, it's just, it's rumbling with uh, this rejoicing, with this next uh, praise that, that breaks out. And it says, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So, you know, this is, we said last week that in chapter 18, Babylon is being destroyed. The Antichrist is gathered in the battle over into the land of Israel for the battle of Armageddon. The Lord is coming back. All of these things are happening like boom, boom, boom. They're one right after another. So this is the end of man's age upon the earth as we know it is being wrapped up and these events that are coming one after another. So for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, it's, he's shown his power over Babylon. He's about to come back. The next scene we'll read in verses 17 through, um, sorry, verse 11 through 16, and this will be next week, it's the Lord coming back. So they're seeing the power of the Lord. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. And here it is. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is a righteous acts of the saints. So heaven is rejoicing. Verse 5, um, 
we got this important event that is being announced, and so all this uh, wonderful celebration is associated with it. And as we come to verse 7, we come to the statement that the marriage of the Lamb has come. That is, that the bride of Jesus has been united in marriage to the Lord. Who is the bride? Well, we're going to take some time to you know, talk a lot about this, but it is the church. Jesus has been married to his bride, the church. These uh, are not events that are about to happen in verse 7. These are events that will have already transpired. Of course, it's future for us right now. But at the moment that the statement is made, he's not looking forward. He's looking backwards. He says, the marriage of the Lamb has come. Why is that significant? Because the second coming hasn't happened yet. So if the marriage of the Lamb has already happened, then the bride must be in heaven with the Lord for that union to have taken place. She's decked out and she's adorned um, with the righteous acts. She's gone through the beam of seat judgment and she's been purified. So these are events that have already happened. And so for those who associate the second coming of Christ as a simultaneous event with the rapture of the church, so they place a rapture at the end, you have some... You have some explaining to do because the marriage has already taken place. It's not a present tense verb. It's not a future tense verb. It is a past tense. It's an aorist verb that is looking back. The marriage metaphor is often used in Scripture, both in the Old Testament for Israel and in the New Testament for the church. In the Old Testament, Israel is likened to the wife of Yahweh. One of the probably um, you know, most famous uh, portrayals of this is found in the book of Hosea, where Israel is portrayed as an unfaithful wife. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness, the wife of Yahweh. Um, you, can, you can look this up. You can do a little word search on your own in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament... The church is referred to as the betrothed bride of Jesus. He's the groom. So 2 Corinthians 11.2 says this. Uh, Paul speaking to uh, these believers, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. It's very clear. 2 Corinthians 11.2. The church is the one that is betrothed to Jesus. Um, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Um, just a few verses there. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And as you keep on reading down, you, you see so clearly that um, the husband is exhorted to love his bride like Jesus loves his bride. And her, that bride is the church. In John chapter 3, verses 27 through 29, we see Jesus portrayed as the groom. And this is uh, John the Baptist speaking. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That is a great verse. You could do many studies on that verse alone. That's John 3, 27. 
But verse 28 says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. But I have been sent before him. Now here it is, verse 29. He who has the bride is a bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. What is he saying? He says, I'm the friend, Jesus is the groom. So we see this metaphor of marriage and the church being the bride and Jesus being the groom uh, referred to in uh, these three places. And there's others you could turn to as well. So in the Old Testament, you have the wife. In the New Testament, you have the betrothed, the bride. In the Old Testament, the wife is joined to Yahweh, the first person of the Godhead. In the uh, New Testament, you have the church being betrothed to Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. Now, this is a distinction of, you know, that is being made. And we've got to be careful that we don't press this too much. But there is a distinction that I believe is played out in a much more significant way than just the metaphor here. And that is that Israel is distinct from the church. That the church today, and many godly people do teach this. I just believe it is wrong. I believe it is not a, a, uh, a literal take from the Word of God. I believe that you have to really do a lot of allegory, um, allegorical interpreting of, of passages to arrive there. So the church and Israel are two distinct entities. Now, it's not to say that believers um, within Israel are not part of the church. They are. But nationally, they are a distinct group of people. And so let me read to you what one, um, his name is Dwight Pentecost. He's in heaven. Um, he's with the Lord. But um, here, here's one statement that he makes about this distinction between the two. He says, one of the false interpretations that has plagued the church is the concept that God treats all saints exactly alike. Instead, a literal interpretation of the Bible distinguishes different groups of saints and here, the bride is distinguished from those who are invited to the wedding supper. Instead of treating all alike, God indeed has a program for Israel as a nation and also for those in Israel who are saved. He also has a program for Gentiles in the Old Testament who come to faith in God. And in the New Testament, he has a program for the church as still a different group of saints. So you see these distinctions. Scripture makes these distinctions. And so you have um, the marriage of the Lamb. So some will look at this passage, and what they will say is that the marriage of the Lamb is a union of all believers at all time to Jesus. Um, and yet that is not um, the picture that we are given in the New Testament. Um, so a very narrow group, I believe, is in focus here. When we talk about the marriage of the Lamb, don't confuse us with the upcoming statement that we're going to read of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the wedding ceremony and the reception. Okay, two different things. So the marriage of the Lamb is Jesus being joined to his bride. Now look at verse 7. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. There is a group in heaven that refers to, to the, the believers, the church, that she has been made. Not all have done. They, they, they make a distinction between themselves and the church. So, you know, who is this? It's presumably um, 
all the believers that have, have come through down through the ages, but not the church. They are the ones that are making reference to this. Now, this is not a pecking order in the kingdom of God. Whereas, you know, well, you know, the nation of Israel, they're, you know, they got, they're at the top of the list. And then, and, you know, coming in second is the church. And then you have the you know, Old Testament, you know, believers that came. And they got the tribulation saints. And so that's the pecking order of importance. That's the wrong way to read it. We hear of distinction. And I think we wrongly then imply and insert this idea that, you know, you know, you know benefits, even more benefits, you know, Gold benefits, platinum benefits, you're part of the diamond club. You know, it's not like that. Um, if you are, uh, have faith in Jesus, you're in. And it's a glorious kingdom. But there are different groups of people. And here in verse 7, we hear one group speaking of the union of another group, the church, to, the, uh, to Jesus. And she has received her clothes. It says in verse 8, that um, it was granted to, uh, to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is a righteous acts of the saints. Now, we are saved by grace. We are not saved by our righteous acts. So this is not talking about how this group got saved. And that is a very important conversation. But we know how they were saved. They were saved as they put their faith and trust in the Lord and the grace of God brought them in, cleansed them and redeemed them apart from works. But once you have been saved by grace, you are to work out your salvation. You are to live a life that's pleasing to him. And so this is a reference to those deeds that the church has done, the bride has done uh, in the name of the Lord. Um, so Paul talked about this in Corinthians when he talked about there would be a judgment that the believers would go through. And that fire would come down upon the works of believers. And those deeds, those righteous acts that had been done to the glory and the honor in the name of the Lord, that they will stand the test of the fire. But everything else is going to be burned away. So she has been married, is what we read here, but she also has been arrayed in fine linen, which are the righteous acts. So it would seem that the rapture has happened because the church is up in heaven. And she has gone through the beam of seat judgment and she is now arrayed in her, uh, her uh, white linen, which is representative of her righteous deeds. And next, she has been married. She has been uh, joined to the Lord. So again, people have different opinions about this. Um, people take different uh, stands on when this is going to take place. But let me read to you again I, another uh, quote, this time from Thomas Ice. He says, This statement means that by this point in history, right before the second coming, the sum total of the bride, the body of Christ, is in heaven and has already gone through the beam of judgment where the church-age believers are to be evaluated for their faithfulness to Christ during the present age, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The result of going through the judgment seat of Christ results in the bride being given fine linen. Uh, Revelation 19.8 says this is the righteous acts of the saints. This is how his bride has made herself ready. Ready for what? She has made herself ready for the marriage of the Lamb. 
So thus within the framework of the symbolism being used in this passage, it means the marriage, the marriage ceremony takes place right before the second coming, which makes perfect sense. Because as we go on, we're going to see that uh, the Lord then invites people and actually speaks of the blessedness of those who've been invited to the wedding reception. So you, if, if you say that the second coming of Christ is the rapture of the church, you've got a real problem with the order here. So uh, some will say, well, the rapture happens right before the second coming. So the church is taken up to heaven, you know, goes through this rush, you know, um, beam of seat judgment and through this, you know, quick marriage ceremony and comes back down to heaven. It's not, that's, that doesn't make, um, it just doesn't make sense. And it's not what scripture says is going to happen. The rapture always talks about the church being caught up into the air. The second coming always talks about Jesus coming back to the earth. So this is, this is what we have going on as we uh, move into verse 9. We move into the, uh, to this great party, the party of the ages. In verse 9 it says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Actually, before I get there, I, I missed a point I wanted to make. On this 2 Corinthians 5 uh, reference to the judgment seat where a believer is before the Lord and their life is being reviewed, not for salvation, but to give um, rewards for the way in which they live their life. I, I just I pray you would, you would allow that, as I pray it, it, it does in my own life, sober, sober our hearts to think that there is a, a real day coming when we... Not just think of we as in a corporate sense, but me, you, we're going to be before the Lord. And he's going to review our life, the way we've spent our time, the way we have dealt with each other, the kindness we've shown, the love we've shown, the generosity we've shown, the mercy that we've shown to people, how we've handled the gospel. Have we been faithful proclaimers of it? Have we served one another? Have we used our spiritual gifts to bring glory and edification to the Lord. This is such a sobering moment to, to ponder that we're going to have before the Lord. Now, what's that going to be like <laughs> to have our lives reviewed? Well, I think it's going to be a it's going to be a time where it's fearful in one sense. We fear God. We know there are things that we have not done that we uh, should have done. But I also think it's going to be a time of incredible grace that we're going to see God pour out His grace. Um, and things that we did halfway, and it wasn't as good, but the Lord showed up and poured out His grace. And our, our failures are met by the grace of God, and we see what He did through our lives, even though we weren't all that we should be. Now, I hope, hopefully it doesn't make anybody feel, well, that's good, then I, I guess I won't try that hard. No. I, I pray that that grace of God causes you to want to even you know, stretch out further, to lay your life down for the cause of Jesus Christ. He laid his life down for you. He laid his life down for me. He came to this earth. So now verse 9, we get to the big party, the wedding reception. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So after the announcement of the union, it says essentially there's going to be a party and everybody who's invited, you are so blessed to be invited to come to the wedding reception of Jesus to the church. So the question is, 
when is that going to happen and where does it happen and who are the guests that are, in, that are invited here? Well, when is it going to happen? Um, I believe it's going to happen right after the second coming of Christ. As the Lord uh, defeats the, uh, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet, sets up his throne, it's then that the feast will, become, will begin. So the wedding feast is the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. And it's going to be quite a scene. So that's when it's going to happen. It's going to happen here um, on earth. And we'll explore why uh, we believe that is as we move forward. But um, I, I, th- I just really think that these are some things that we should um, ponder in our hearts. We should ponder in our mind. Now, some say that the bride is also the invited guests. So the one that was joined to the lamb is also now the guests. So and then I'll just read to you, you know, what is stated by this. The invited surely include the followers of the lamb thus making them at one and the same time wedding guests and part of the bride. Whether others are also invited is left unclear, though there's no explicit statement that others have not been invited. So this view looks at the two different, you know, looks at this scene and sees, okay, in the metaphor, you are both the bride and you are a wedding guest. Um, I, it, it, that doesn't make sense to me. I understand why they say that, because if they make it just the church and they don't believe <laughs> that um, this is a reference to the church, then it, you know, their understanding and their explanation falls apart. So they have to make the wedding guests and the bride to be the same person. But that's not the way it ever works. It, ne- it never works like that. Now, could God use two different metaphors um, to describe different aspects of a believer's experience, he absolutely could. Is he doing it here? Some say yes, some say no. And I am of the group that says no. I think a better solution, hang with me, is to see that the guests are believers from the Old Testament era. If you will, from Abraham to John the Baptist. All those that have been a part of that and, and there's scriptural reason for, for seeing this. So Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. Certainly the bride is not invited to her own wedding. This invitation goes out to guests, believers from the Old Testament era and the tribulation. So again, he goes on to talk about how there are different distinctions. So this marriage supper is a wedding feast celebration when Jesus is joined together with his bride and now the kingdom is established, and as he comes down to earth, this feast is going to take place on planet earth during this new kingdom. And there are several passages in the Gospels that make reference to weddings and to banquets that, as you study them, it really feels like Jesus is talking about this event here. So in Matthew chapter 8, and I don't have time to go through the entire chapter, So we'll just kind of dial into a few verses. And you might want to write down Luke 13, um, verses 28 and 29. So these are kind of parallel passages, but they do bring out a few different points. So Matthew 8, 11 and 12 say this. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And as you read the same parallel passage in Luke 13, it really becomes clear who these are that are being cast out. It's the leaders and those who rejected Jesus at his first coming. They believe they have a seat at the table in the kingdom. And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, it's going to happen. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're going to sit down at this wedding feast. They're going to sit down at this banquet. And there's going to be people that are going to come from the east and the west. People that you can't believe are there. But I'll tell you who's not going to be there. You're not going to be there. You are not going to have a place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we, we see who some of the guests are at this um, wedding feast. So the patriarchs are mentioned, but it's, it's all that have believed down through the ages. Turn with me over to Matthew. I want to read this passage. It's a little bit longer, but I want to take a, a look at this together. Matthew 22, and we'll look at verses 1 through 14. I think it really helps us to get our, our mind around the, the, uh, the same imagery that's used by Jesus in his teaching. And then in the book of Revelation. And Jesus answered, verse 1, and spoke to them again by a parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. I mean, you can solely see the whole first coming of Christ and the rejection of Jesus in this, this parable so far. But the king, but when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment. He, was, shouldn't have, he didn't belong there. Tried to sneak in. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So Jesus is calling. This is a guy who wanted to do it his own way. And he says, no, 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 no. You don't get to do it your way. You come through me. You get garments through the Father, and you are made righteous. So we see here, who are those that are blessed to be invited, as it says in verse 9? These are the people that are in the highways and the byways. Yes, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those who have followed. But, you know, it's also, there's going to be those that are surprised they're not there. Jesus said, you know, essentially, like Caiaphas and Annas and, and these that thought that they would be a part of the kingdom. But then there's going to be those that are surprised, like, wow, how did I make it in? These that get saved during the tribulation at the last moment are going to be a part of this grand wedding feast that takes place to celebrate the union of Jesus to his church and then also the setting up of his kingdom. So following the second coming of Christ, a wedding feast will take place and the church will be there and faithful 
saints down through the ages that are not part of the church will be gathered together at that feast. Now, I want to take some time. So that's all scripture. Now I want to take some time to kind of break away from that for a a moment and and give you um, a cultural look at an ancient Jewish wedding. This is not scripture, okay? Um, I think it's powerful. I think it's, I think it's compelling. But I do want you to know, I'm not reading scripture to you right now. But let's talk about the ancient Jewish wedding. And depending on how you break it down, there are three main movements or three main stages of a wedding. The first was the betrothal. So this is the legal consummation of that marriage by the parents. Bride and groom are not involved so much. It's just the parents sitting down. And at that time, when they're being joined, uh, the arrangements being made, a legally binding union. And if you broke it, you would have to get a divorce. If you run faithful, it was counted as adultery during this time. So that's the betrothal. A dowry payment at this time would be made by the groom's father to obtain that bride. This betrothal has been going on since Jesus ascended to heaven. The Father has been drawing unto himself a bride. That the payment that was made was the sacrifice of his son. That was the dowry payment that was being made. The next part, the next stage of an ancient Jewish wedding was the fetching and ceremony. So if you want to put this in four different categories, you could. But I'm putting fetching and the ceremony together. So this is when the groom would go to uh, claim his bride. Now, ladies, listen to this. The bride didn't know when that was going to happen. The only person that knew when this was going to happen was the father of the, not bride, of the groom. Kind of brings us back to an interesting point when Jesus says, my father knows. It's my father who knows when this is going to happen. So the date was set by the father. He would go to the bride's house where she resided and he would get her and bring her to himself. And upon coming um, to that place, there then would be a ceremony. I believe that this is talking about the rapture of the church. It's what Jesus said in John chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you at my father's house. And this is what he's doing. He's preparing this place. Um, and so when the rapture happens, this is when that second part of the, the, um, the ancient Jewish wedding would be fulfilled. The bride will be in heaven with the Lord. Then there's the um, after and then there'll be the ceremony that takes place. And that's what we just read about. Right. We just read about the wedding ceremony that the lamb has taken his bride there in Revelation 19. The third part is the wedding reception. And this was a celebration that could last for several days. And it always, even like it does in our culture, and I can't think of a culture where it would be anything different, the feast, the celebration, the party, always follows the ceremony. So this feast here that we're reading about in Revelation 19.9 would be that wedding reception. And so some would say that this wedding uh, feast is the entire thousand-year reign of Christ. I don't think there's nowhere in Scripture that we know how long it's going to last. Some would say, no, it's not, but we don't know how long. Well, we'll find out. 
Let me read to you a summary of this, this whole picture. Again, it's from Warren Wiersbe. It says, Jewish wedding days in that day were quite unlike weddings in the Western world. First, there was an engagement, usually made by the parents when the prospective bride and groom were quite young. This engagement was binding and could be broken only by a form of divorce. Any unfaithfulness during the engagement was considered adultery. When the public ceremony was to be enacted, the groom would go to the bride's house and claim her for himself. He would take her to his home for the wedding supper and all the guests would join the happy couple. This feast could last as long as a week. Today, the church is engaged to Jesus Christ and we love him even though we don't see him, 1 Peter 1.8. One day he will return and take his bride to heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. John 14, 1 through 6. At the judgment seat of Christ, her works will be judged and all her spots and blemishes removed. This being completed, the church will be ready to return to the earth with her bridegroom at the close of the tribulation to reign with him in glory. Um, we already read those verses, Matthew 8, 11. Some, and so, so you see this picture that is... It's a cultural picture, but when you really begin to look at the scriptures, it just fits so nicely and so well. We close here in Revelation 19, verse 10. And we, we see John being overcome with joy. And um, I, I'm kind of, I feel a little easy on John here as we read this. I think he is so overwhelmed at the opportunity that he's going to participate in, and the kingdom coming, that he just kind of makes, he makes a blunder. He says, and I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant. So this angel is speaking. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So all these prophecies that I'm talking about, it's all about Jesus. It's not about me, an angel. And it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. John was overcome with the thought of this uniting together to the Lord and having the, the righteous garments put on him and then coming back with the Lord and being at that table and all of these people, all of these guests coming to celebrate. I want you to think about something. You're going to take part in that. You are going to be there. Now listen, all the attention is on who? <laughs> It's on Jesus. Um, it's on Jesus. It's not on the church. It's not on individuals. But we still get to participate in it. And how glorious this can be. I mean, the earth is going to be on a massive party, rejoicing that Jesus has finally established the kingdom for Israel, for that group of people. And he's going to rule and reign. And, and that whole relationship he has with them. But then for the church, though, Israel will be rejoicing. The saints, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all these prophets, Esther and Ruth, they're just going to be rejoicing. John the Baptist and at the union of you to the Lamb. So I just, when I think about this, I just want to ask you, what is it that could possibly compare what is it that your hand is upon? What is it that you're involved in? What is the thing that you're hoping for to give you joy that could possibly compare to this? You can't even begin to think of writing this yourself. If for, for us to sit and write such a scene as this 
outside of the inspiration of God, it would just sound so blasphemous <laughs> to say that I'm going to have this elevated you know, place and position with the Lord. But the Lord has said that. You know, truly, we will live happily ever after. I mean, it is the ultimate, you know, um, reality fairy tale. I mean, it's going to happen. And so as we close here, don't be caught wasting your time with lesser things. Allow yourself to be overcome with joy over the hope that you have, over this union that's coming. And allow your focus to always be on Jesus, not on a man, not on a teacher, not on an angel, not on some kind of experience. It's Jesus who is um, the spirit of prophecy. He is the one that we need to be centered on. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this hope, this amazing promise you've given to us that we're going to be with you in heaven and you're going to clothe us with righteous acts. You're going to honor us, Lord, and we don't deserve honor, but it's all your grace. And then we're going to be joined to you and we're going to come to this amazing feast, this, the marriage supper of the Lamb there on earth. Lord, this is too amazing. This is too great. And we just want to say thank you. Help us to live soberly and righteously in this present age, not wasting time, not missing opportunity to store up one more good deed in your name for your glory and for your honor. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.